practice is really difficult. Along the way, there are moments of joy, tranquility, peace, which are affirmations uh, of why we do the practice. And then we have those moments again. We continue cultivating the factors of awakening. And sometimes when these conditions are, are ripe, usually when we're not really looking for anything, the mind's really relaxed, we're gifted with a sudden, unexpected insight. Perhaps something like this poem that begins uh, by Octavio Paz. All the doors were broken down, and the sun came bursting through my forehead. It tore apart my closed lids, cut loose my being from its wrappers, and pulled me out of myself to wake me from this animal sleep and its centuries of stone. This is grace, but this is a grace that comes from conditions, causes in conditions, from the factors of awakening coming into balance, from the mind, heart, being in that moment perfectly put together, perfectly put together is one of the definitions for the sixth awakening factor of concentration, the samadhi bojanga. So I'd like to speak a bit about what samadhi is, what vipassana samadhi is, that we're primarily practicing here, uh, what the Vipassana jhanas are and the, the jhanic factors that make up a Vipassana jhana and the, what experience, what insight knowledge comes from a Vipassana jhana. The characteristic of this perfectly put together mind of samadhi is non-distractedness. And it functions as a um, quality of collectedness, collecting the mind together, gathering all the other mental states that are arising simultaneously into a smooth, coherent whole. Consciousness, or um, what we experience as that knowing, moment-to-moment -moment knowing of experience, uh, is the chief function of of a mind moment. It's called chitta, consciousness. A, a moment of consciousness has many components. The, the chief one is this knowing, and there's also along with it many others called universals. That is, each moment of consciousness arises this quality of knowing, and a number of other universals, such as attention, is there. Uh, Contact, that is, the contact between, at the sense door, between the sense input uh, and the sense door itself. That's contact. Feeling is always there, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral feeling. Perception, that which perceives or marks the object for memory or recollection. Uh, samadhi is always there, concentration, psychic life factor. They all arise in the moment, 
when we're practicing, a number of other states can arise, such as the awakening factors, energy, investigation, mindfulness, uh, joyous interests, tranquility. These states also appear in a moment of consciousness and draw all the other, in fact, all the other uh, so-called beautiful states, the 19 beautiful states that include faith and uh, the Brahma Viharas, wisdom. They all come together in this moment of knowing. Samadhi is the proximate cause for the unfolding of wisdom. That is, so that wisdom comes in a moment of consciousness and really knows something for what it is. Sees clearly, directly experiences the nature of an appearing experience in the mind or body or any of the extending sense fields. Samadhi has this silent, still quality that creates the space for this intuitive knowing that we call wisdom or vipassana. So we can also see the, the value of samadhi as this unifying power or nature of mind that, in, that draws together in a moment of consciousness all these qualities, all these elements, and they work together. They work in unity. That's why it can be said, uh, sometimes it's defined as the unification of consciousness, samadhi. It's the opposite of papancha, opposite of the distracted or fragmented mind, the mind that gets uh, uh, shattered like a mirror, or that's like the rushing rapids of a river. It's fractured pieces reflecting light in all different directions, whereas unified consciousness is that perfect mirroring. It's just flowing like deep water, still, silent, seen as it is. This is the nature, this whole unified mind, unified by the samadhi, is the nature of the free-flowing natural mind. It's just present for each moment's experience, fully, completely, knowing, comprising all the factors of awakening. Energy is there, mindfulness, some degree of understanding, tranquility, calm. In our meditation practice, there are two types of samadhi. One type is the pure tranquility, pure concentration type of samadhi, where it's a select and fixed meditation. We choose a single object and focus on that object and try to restrain the wandering mind with the intent of serenity. Um, it's said to be like practicing indoors, where we're insulated from the elements, the outdoor elements. <coughs> practicing the Brahma Viharas is one such, such uh, fixed concentration practice. We attune to just uh, the metta. The object of this meditation is metta, and we use supports for the metta. The image or felt sense, the metta subject, uh, and the phrases at first to stimulate the quality, innate quality of metta. And when it arises, the metta itself is the meditation object that we're one pointed with. So practicing indoors, we're insulated from the intrusions, the insults 
of the hindrances and so forth. So that's why it's so protected. It's not without wisdom. Through this practice, we come to know if it's the Brahma-viharas that we're choosing as our, our single object focus. Uh, we come to know the nature of metta and karuna and mudita and upekka, equanimity. We come to know the nature of these mind states and how they reside in the heart and how they influence our bodies and minds and our lives. And we also come to know and have knowledge of the nature of the pure samadhi. Because samadhi has the great benefit of at least temporarily purifying the mind, removing all the, the hindrances from the mind and making it very focused and pure in this way. One can practice um, pure concentration practice to the degree of a, of a uh, laser force concentration. It's called access or jhanic absorption, total absorption into the object of meditation. So pure than the mind that uh, it's anything that falls on the mind that has a nature to stick or repel, like attachment or aversion, just flows off like uh, raindrops on a lotus leaf. Just flows off. So this pure practice called samatha jhana, pure concentration jhana, is, cannot in itself bring about liberation. But it can be the doorway, it can be the gateway, it can be the basis for it. Uh, particularly in, in the Brahma-vihara practices is the added benefit of uh, the heart being purified by the Brahma-viharas and the concentration as a base for Vipassana. For then we can take that laser force focus uh, and tune it, not to the absorbed nature, because if it's absorbed, it cannot see the nature of things as they are, but attune it to the flow of things, the moment-to-moment -moment nature of things. And the mindfulness opens to the, the field of experience, the full range of experience in this way. The second kind of samadhi is Vipassana samadhi, which one can begin practicing directly without needing first to develop the pure concentration, one-pointedness. Vipassana samadhi is known as a kanika or momentary samadhi because it's moving, it's fluid, it attunes to the momentary nature of things. Uh, and therefore it's very supple and, flex and flexible. It's not that one-pointed, uh, uh, non-moving fixation of the samatha, pure concentration practice. Inquiry into the nature of our unique and universal experience is the aim of Vipassana Samadhi. The unique being the elements of the body and mind. Knowing these elements, knowing pressure as pressure and vibration and heat, coldness, hardness, softness and so forth, and the mental states of joy and fear and restlessness and calm and sadness and clarity. That's knowing the unique nature of phenomena and then seeing them in relationship, their interconnectedness uh, and their, their universal qualities of being in constant flow 
appearing and vanishing, appearing and vanishing, moment to moment. This is insight, uh, samadhi, and therefore uh, the samadhi that we practice when we do direct vipassana meditation. It leads, of course, to the very direct perceptions that we have of anicca, dukkha, anatta, seeing the flow of impermanence, seeing the uh, unreliable nature of condition experience, and seeing the emptiness of phenomena. This practice is more like practicing outdoors, where we're exposed to raw nature, open to the entire range of elements that, uh, that appear before us. Uh, it gets just as nearly as strong, it said, as the access concentration in the pure concentration practice, the pure samatha practice. Uh, strong enough to hold the hindrances back, that is. But we're directly dealing with things. It's not the aim simply to restrain the mind uh, and suppress the hindrances, but to have a, a flexibility, a, a equanimity, a fluidity, that free flow natural mind that can deal with the things that we can, our Vipassana practice then extends more into ordinary life as well. Doesn't depend uh, on the seclusion required for pure concentration practice. The Buddha said, mind precedes all things. Mind is their chief. They are all mind wrought. If with an impure mind a person speaks or acts, suffering follows him or her, uh, like the wheel that follows the foot of the ox. Mind pre precedes all things. Mind is their chief. They are all mind wrought. If with a pure mind a person speaks or acts, happiness follows them, like their never departing shadow. In, in the sacred and transformative retreat space, we come to see that the, that the timeless epicycle of the uh, samsarics, of samsara's revolving wheel is happening in our own mind. We see the whole revolving wheel of the Four Noble Truths and the relationship of attachment and ignorance to suffering, and birth and death, revolving in our own mind. It's all happening inside not out there with the things of the world. So we learn through our practice that the ultimate responsibility is with our own inner life, our own inner world, our own mind and body, and rest on our practice, our awareness, uh, and our inner responses to what appears in the outer world and uh, the inner relations with that world. Buddha also said, meditation develops an awareness and wisdom as grounded and as vast as the earth. This is all distilled down into this mind of a samadhi that, uh, that uh, uh, unifies all the elements of consciousness of mind and body. In this, into this uh, cohered uh, space of 
seeing and understanding. The mind-heart grows soft, but also um, precise. It's buoyant, and yet uh, powerful, strong. It's uh, piercing, that ability to penetrate into the nature of things and know things as they are from the inside. This, um, the example from a jataka may mirror what I'm saying. If I'm just going to tell a jataka anyway. You know. Once the bodhisattva <laughs> was born in the kingdom of Kasi in, the, in a family of, uh, of smiths. And they were uh, excelled in crafts and gifted in their work. But his family was poor. Uh, and in another nearby village, it was a more prosperous village. Uh, it had about a, th a thousand different uh, smiths. Uh, and a principal smith was the favorite of the king uh, and made all the metal objects for this king. Uh, and he was rich, of great substance. He was also known to have an exceedingly beautiful daughter. And in ni iron works, they would make things like uh, razors and axes, plowshares, uh, all the tools needed and so forth. And so the Bodhisattva first heard of uh, this young maiden and the legend of her beauty spread around uh, the village wells and the tea shops and so forth. And he immediately had this strong attraction, merely hearing about her. He was confident in himself and his skill, his gifts. And so he thought, I will make her my partner. And so he, <laughs> he first made a very delicate needle, so fine a needle. This was his best gift as a, as a smith, as a needlesmith, very fine needle, and put it in, in to, into uh, some sheaths, and then into a tube, and then into a case, put it into his pocket. And then he set off uh, for the village carrying this special gift he had in him. Now, how he made this needle and its sheaths, as you will hear, um, is not to be told. For such things uh, as this kind of work prospers through the greatness of a bodhisattva and uh, his or her knowledge. So he made his way to the village and started to sell his craft, you know. He said, who will buy uh, such a needle as this? Finely made, quickly threaded, smooth and rounded, uh, polished with emery, uh, sharp and yet buoyant, can pierce metal, he even said. And the, uh, the, the rich smith in this village, the, was, the daughter heard this. She heard his voice, his sweet voice. Before, before she heard his voice, she thought she felt good. <laughs> but when she heard his voice, she felt like she was coming out you know, of, a, of a real bad case of food poisoning <laughs> and had just cleansed, been cleansed with a thousand bottles of uh, Perrier water. <laughs> she heard his voice. She wondered, who is this? And so she, she said back, she said, well, who is hawking needles in a village of smiths? 
you know, it's like bringing wool to New Zealand or cheese to Switzerland or coals to Newcastle. Who's hawking needles in a village of Smiths? You know, dwellers in all the kingdom, even the king and queen themselves come here to my father for their uh, needs in needlecraft or any metalcraft. It's folly for you to sell here. No one will buy from you. And the Bodhisattva said, compassionately and sweetly, you speak out of ignorance. You know not what I have. Anyone who values their craft would want to see such an article as I have here, for it speaks for itself. Skill speaks for itself. And you say this needle can pierce metal, she said. I do indeed. And it can do more than that. And by this time, the father was hearing the conversation, and uh, he yelled out, call that boy in here. So the bodhisattva came in and said, you know, well, who are you? And who's your family? And what is this you say that you have? Uh, let's see. Let's see this needle. And the bodhisattva said, well, I'd like to show you this needle, but isn't it better to show this needle to everyone gathered at once rather than to each person singly? And the, uh, the master smith said, yes, you're right. Let's, uh, let's show your qualities to all at once or the lack of them. So everyone, all thousand smiths of the village came to watch this spectacle. And the Bodhisattva then asked the master if he would not bring in a heavy metal anvil and a, a bronze bowl filled with water. And that was brought in. And then the, the, uh, the uh, head master smith then said, well, you're going to show me this needle? So he took the tube out and opened the tube and pulled out the case and then opened the case and then pulled out the needle and handed it to the master smith and he took it and he says, huh, this is the needle, huh? Impressive. And the bodhisattva said, no, it's not. That's a sheath. And he couldn't tell, you know, the top from the bottom how to open it. So the bodhisattva took it back and with a special little uh, nick of his thumbnail. He opened it up, pulled it out, and put the sheath down by his feet and the needle down by his hands. He says, oh, well, this must be the needle. Impressive. But he said, no, that's the sheath. He took it back again uh, because the master smith still couldn't find the top or the bottom. And uh, again, a little twick at the end with his thumbnail. He opened up put a second sheath down, put the needle again by the hands. Six times did he do this. And finally, put the needle down. And then the Master Smith said, this is incredible, you know, and then all the thousand Smiths were cheering and, and they, instead of clapping in those days, they'd flick their fingernails and wave handkerchiefs. <laughs> Here is the needle, he said. And the headsmith said, well, what is this, what is this strength? And the um, bodhisattva said, well, put the anvil on top of the bowl of water, the bronze bowl of water, and then have uh, one of your strongest persons uh, hammer it through the anvil. You'll see its strength. 
So this was done. Big anvil, heavy metal anvil put on top of the bronze bowl of water and the needle was held there and it was tapped on top of the metal and it went through like butter and then fell into the water and pierced into the water and then came up and then floated on the water moving not a hair's breadth up or down. And this blew them all away, of course. <laughs> Never in all our lives have we even heard of such a needle or a needlesmith. They all said, and they cheered and snapped their fingers and waved their... And then the mother and the father, you know, threw water on the, on the bodhisattva, the needlesmith, the poor needlesmith from Kasi, and the daughter, and uh, gave them away in sublime partnership. And of course, they lived happily ever after. <laughs> and soon, the Bodhisattva became the most renowned uh, smith in all the land and, uh, and uh, took over the long tradition of fine craftsmanship. Now, this quality of this needle is the connection of I hope I can make. <laughs> is the quality of <laughs> this Vipassana Samadhi <laughs> that's uh, buoyant and uh, strong and yet uh, and firm and supple and, uh, and all these qualities and it's such a, it's such a subtlety of and power and penetration and softness of concentration that's able to see things as they are, that's able to penetrate the truth, able to open to the nature of things. It's the samadhi that rounds off the, the rough edges made by the kalesas, by the fetters of the mind. It comprises in it a, what we could say is a double vision. That is the ability to recognize and see and be with what has arisen and then to have the ability of knowledge to penetrate and know what it is. You know, very often we, you know, we get halfway there. The, we start to see what's arisen, but the Vipassana Samadhi isn't developed to the extent of, of knowing. Things arise, but they're not yet known. You know, so uh, uh, we try to stay with it. We try to not let the mind wander. We try to not let it go off into uh, papancha, conjecture, or imaginings about what's happening, but really to stay with it. The, the unknown part is often the, the resistance, the hidden moods and mind states that, uh, that make us more intolerant of what's unpleasant or grasping what's pleasant. We can't eliminate pleasant experience, unpleasant experience, neutral experience, and that's not our aim. We wouldn't want to do that. But we can create a skillful, spacious relationship with this, these things that arise. And then there comes the ability to start to know what has arisen, that intuitive, immediate knowing, the, the wisdom factor that's drawn in by the Vipassana Samadhi. Buddha said that we have to keep our minds from neither wandering without nor stopping within. The Vipassana 
samadhi, and this I will elaborate on this koan, neither wandering without nor stopping within. The Vipassana Samadhi, from the beginning of practice, begins to develop uh, the five jhanic factors of practice and the Vipassana jhanas. The five jhanic factors are the uh, vitaka, or connecting, vichara, or immersing into experience, piti, which is joy, sukha, which is ease or comfort, and ekagata, one-pointedness of mind. And I will elaborate on these. The, the first jhana, the first vipassana jhana, is the insight into the rapidly appearing and disappearing uh, phenomena of mind and body. And it occurs as the five jhanic factors come into balance, come into harmony with each other, or are charged. Vipassana jhana develops as we relax into a rhythm, a, a constancy, a, a st steady and easy being with experience moment to moment. And this is what brings these factors into play. So the first two factors are important, particularly in the, the first Vipassana jhana. The first Vipassana jhana is the first true insight. It follows after starting to see the difference, the nature between uh, mind and matter, and seeing the interrelationship of mind and matter, mind and body. And then at some point, the true Vipassana insight uh, arises. And this is the first Vipassana jhana, comprised of the five jhanic factors. The first two of these are vitaka vichara. Vitaka is that quality of mind that connects with experience. It, when we first notice, for example, a sensation, pressure in the body, it's the vitaka that's connecting with that sensation of pressure. And the vitaka, at the same time, fires the mind, invigorates it, energizes it, while simultaneously softening the resistance to experience. That is, it overcomes the hindrance of sloth and torpor, or any resistance to effort in the practice fires up the effort. And the second jhanic factor, vichara, sustains that connection. And that's what allows the mindfulness to go in and know the pressure as pressure and know its changing nature. Know how it's uh, moments of pressure and not one solid, continuous pressure. The vichara has a nature to uh, rub, to investigate, Staying power uh, of mind with what's happening. Vichara brings about faith, conviction, confidence. It overcomes the doubt. Each of the jhanic factors uh, displaces one of the hindrances. So vitaka, uh, while it connects and energizes, uh, dispels sloth and torpor, where vichara 
while it rubs, investigates, immerses into experience, uh, overcomes doubt, replaces it with confidence. Both of these two uh, jhanic factors, vitaka, vichara, connecting, uh, immersing, establish mindfulness in the stream of mind-body experience. The mind therefore becomes more pure in, in the clarity of such seclusion, the hindrances weaken, and there are moments of very crystal clear vision, crystal seeing. For example, when you hear a sound, and the first tendency of the mind is to, to recognize that sound. That's the connecting of vichara, and the, or the connecting of vitaka and the rubbing or the immersion of vichara stays with the reverberations, feels the different timbers and uh, uh, tones of the sound that's heard, and then attunes to the phenomena of hearing, through either through one of the doors, uh, the materiality uh, doors, that is feeling the experience of the sound waves themselves, earth, air element, this tuning to sound vibration, or tuning to the ear door that's receiving that sound vibration. Both of these are material objects. The sound vibration is the material element, the ear door receiving that sound, the filaments of the inner ear vibrating, that's also a material element. Or it can attune to the, the hearing consciousness that is, the knowing of hearing itself, which is a, a nama, a, a, a mental element. So either the nama or rupa is attuned to primarily due to the power and force of these first two jhanic factors, vitaka, vichara. The first vipassana jhana establishes the happiness of seclusion, because the, the mind and body are are more removed from the intrusions of wandering mind or the hindrances, the distractions that arise. So this happiness of seclusion is established by this first Vipassana jhana. It's the mind wants to stay tuned, just watching the interesting phenomena of things appearing, disappearing. That's the nature of not wandering without. The Buddha said, neither wander without nor stop within. The not wandering without is the mind that gets lost in long you know, uh, distractions of mind. So the mind bends back and wants to stay in this insight state and, and feel the protection of this happiness of seclusion. It's important here to remember if we stretch out a moment of mindfulness, there's those three aspects of recognition, acceptance, and disidentification, where we recognize something's happening. Maybe the noting mind helps do that, uh, fear. And the second is the allowing for it to be there. Sometimes this requ requires the the um, 
the quality of, of metta, that unconditional acceptance or compassion and that allows that fear state to be there. And this gives the space then for the disidentification, which comes from the direct investigation of the fear, the knowing of it. We don't intend to disidentify, that will never happen. But through the seeing of things as they are, it's the nature due to the power of mindfulness to disidentify, to see phenomena as it is. Longing, desires, painful emotions. And often these arise and very quickly blend with consciousness and color, like a dye, color our consciousness. And, and bring in attachment, aversion, uh, uh, not ignorance that is not seen clearly to replace that uh, unified, collected mind. Instead, these states, again, refract, uh, uh, disperse, dispel the unity of awareness. We just need to recognize that. Open to that. Let the awareness grow wide, wide as the ocean, or as wide as the, the shore around the ocean. So no, matter, no matter how large the anger or restlessness Awareness becomes like the shore that surrounds that ocean of anger, fear, restlessness. And then it's held again. We can see it, we can open to it, we can accept it. And in the very investigation of it comes the disidentification. Difficult states sometimes require a moment to pause, you know, to um, to hover around that acceptance stage. Because otherwise, it becomes a hidden mind state, a hidden mood of resistance in which there can never be a true investigation because it's like seeing the experience, viewing it through the lens of that resistant state. Just can't get there. Oh. Once in Bodh Gaya, India, uh, I was at this... Um, Burmese monastery, and I was talking with the, the abbot there, and a retreat had just ended, a Tibetan retreat, in a Tibetan temple, also in Bodh Gaya. And a young man came in, uh, totally distraught. You know, he had had a good retreat, but the retreat involved a lot of uh, visualizations, including other realms and beings and entities and so forth. And he had on his on his he was walking down the road and he saw a dog run over by a truck. And he was in such a sensitive open place, he said, he could actually see it as it was dying, going into an apaya realm, a lower realm, painful realm, dark realm. And he, and he came in just with this, you know, such a, this threshold space being already open and sensitive and like viewing, having a window into that, that hell realm, that Apaya realm. You know, and he came in in this way and the, the Burmese master, you know, just, just took him, you know, kind of pulled him in, down to him and, and held him, put his hands on his head like this. And it was just... Uh, radiating this loving-kindness, just not saying anything for quite some time. Just letting, him, letting the young man feel human warmth, 
and care. You know, and then saying a few words after a while, just asking him what happened. You know, just affirming him and affirming his experience, letting him feel it, letting him feel the states, because it was like being, for him, it was like being pulled down into that realm, partially. And so he had to feel the fear and the grief and the sadness and the, the shock of his, of his vision. And the, and the Burmese monk, by his presence, by his affirming presence and his steadiness and the space of his compassion, you know, allowed this young man to go through those feelings, to feel those feelings, to accept them. Feeling is healing. Mindful feeling is healing. Mindful, compassionate feeling is healing. Sometimes we can take difficult feelings to the very deepest level. That is, maybe recognize where they're lodged somehow in our life, in a, in a timeline, in relationships, or in family. Recognize that uh, and, and accept it but even take it to the very deepest samsaric level of pain. That is, it suddenly transformed from a more personalized pain, not ignored, you know, recognized, accepted, seen, but then taken to the very deepest level of samsaric pain, the, the dukkha of existence itself, the fragility, the vulnerability of life itself. And it felt on that level uh, in, a, in a skillful way, you know, while being anchored in the present, uh, that insight is, can be extraordinarily liberating, freeing, uh, on all levels, including all the personal levels of where that particular dukkha is lodged in our psyche. And we can take it to the deepest fundamental ground level, then all the reverberations of that pain through our personal lives, many lives, this life, all lives, can start to uh, fall away. The, the wrappers that wrap our life, the uh, wrap around our life. So the first two jhanic factors are vitaka, vichara, uh, also arising in this first jhana, vipassana jhana, or three other jhanic factors, piti, sukha, ekagata. The piti, actually spoke about before as a uh, factor of, of awakening. Piti is that, that uh, joyous interest or rapture of mind that sees all of this experience as this adventure in consciousness. It takes a, it's a, a stunning uh, view of life from the inside, of things from the inside. The energy becomes more effortless with PT. It's like we feel like we're on a ride. And the, and the thrill, say, of a, of a circus ride, you know, on a Ferris wheel or something, is not unlike the initial stages of this PT. PT transforms aversion. It's the opposite of ill will in the mind. Sukha is a deep, pervading ease. It's a, a subtle, 
nearly uh, sweet happiness, relaxation, contentment of mind and body. Peaceful, even with painful experience. We feel at rest. And the reason for this is that the, the sukha is the opposite or transforms restlessness, the hindrance of restlessness. So there's not that agitation or restlessness. Even though an experience can be painful or difficult, uh, the mind stays focused and unified because there's no restlessness. Sukha. Piti sukha. Ekagara is one-pointedness. It is the, the calm peace of a collected mind. It's not scattered, not distracted. Ekagara, or one-pointedness, um, is the opposite of desire in the mind, clinging in the mind. So it cools the fragmenting uh, nature of desire. So first Vipassana jhana, then as I said, follows the earlier insights of seeing mind and matter and the, their mutually interconnected nature and focuses on the, uh, the coming and going of experience, the immediacy of experience arising and disappearing. That's the, that's the f first Vipassana jhana and the first true insight, Vipassana insight. Happiness of seclusion. Many of you uh, may not know when you actually have this this insight, but uh, and one of the experiences is being able to uh, sit and observe pain because of the nature of these other of the jhanic factors that comprise the first vipassana jhana, you know, such as the, the sukha where you can just be at ease. It's just this non-reactivity. So you look at pain and you start to see through the solidity, the seeming solidity of the pain, the illusion of uh, uh, the continuous, the continuity of the pain kind of crumbles, gives way. And you continue to watch this pain and it, and it changes from fiery burning to throbbing to pressure to changing textures and shape, intensity. And even a point where the pain itself completely dissolves. Uh, and one of the experiences is being able to uh, sit and observe pain because of the nature of these other, of the jhanic factors that comprise the first Vipassana jhana, you know, such as the, the sukha, where you can just be at ease. It's just this non-reactivity. So you look at pain and you start to see through this solidity the seeming solidity of the pain, the illusion of uh, uh, the continuous, the continuity of the pain kind of crumbles, gives way. And you continue to watch this pain and it, and it changes from fiery burning to throbbing to pressure to changing textures and shape, intensity. And even a point where the pain itself completely dissolves. It becomes like neutral sensation or even blissful sensation. In the second Vipassana jhana, we, we leave behind the first two jhanic factors. There's vitaka, vichara, uh, recede in consciousness. 
Why? Because they are still close to reflect reflective thought. We can still find ourselves, uh, you know, playing out a little papancha mind in reflecting on what's going on or ruminating or uh, thinking about the experience a lot. It feels really close. It's, it's not secluded enough. So at a certain point with, the, with a stepped up awareness, uh, more pure pre-verbal, pre-papancha awareness, the vitaka-vichara fall away. And we're then following the rapidly appearing and disappearing phenomena even more closely. It feels like actually we're more uh, on the inside of it, part of it, that, uh, that we are it. So a lot of faith arises in this second Vipassana jhana. Brightness in the mind, clarity in seeing true nature, more space for joy, rapture, and ease. Without the vitaka vichara, the connecting, sustaining, uh, the piti is often grows in ascendancy. It's strong. So we feel that, that rapture. And uh, we feel the sukha, the ease of being. The, the danger often here in this second vipassana jhana uh, is attachment, craving for these dhamma pleasures because they're fine, they're subtle, they're not dependent on external conditions. They're finer than the, the ordinary sense pleasures. Uh, this is where we can stop within, either wandering without or stopping within. It's the second Vipassana jhana where we're challenged with overcoming that tendency, the subtle craving. But just because awareness gets more subtle and uh, concentration, all the practice factors, everything gets more subtle, uh, to keep up with it all, so does desire. Craving, too, has to keep, get, be more subtle, or it'll be seen. And if it's seen, it's gone. It's like a, a thief in the night, and you turn on the flashlight, and it, it can't conceal its uh, doings. So we have to be really careful. This is where we stop within, and, and all the more uh, strongly be mindful of these craving moments as well. They're also just dhammas, they're just phenomena of mind appearing and wanting. You know, if we miss the liking of that brightness and lightness and ease of being and piti, then we'll, if we miss the liking of it, we'll miss the attachment to the liking of it too. And the sequence happens very fast. The second Vipassana jhana is characterized by the happiness of concentration because of the, the deep interest and delight and distance from the hindrances. One feels very at rest in this concentration. And by continuing that steady uh, constancy of awareness, the insight matures and we overcome the entrapment of the stopping within. The faith, too, matures and becomes more of a conviction based on seeing clearly rather than the vulnerability of a, of a blind faith. In the third Vipassana jhana, it's rapture that fades. Because rapture, if it remains, 
as I already mentioned, with the rapture of the, uh, the awakening factor of rapture, it has the subtle flaw in mental agitation if it's not balanced with calm. So here too, uh, rapture can keep the mind a bit agitated. In the third Vipassana jhana, uh, where there's a strong insight, very strong insight of the nature of things, of true nature, rapture takes more of the background and sukha, comfort, peace, come forward. Here, the enlightenment factor of equanimity is quite, starts to get quite a bit stronger, predominant even. The mind feels very strong and buoyant, even, steady. The, the sukha and the ikagata are the only remaining jhanic factors. That is the, the ease, the happiness and ease that is sukha, and the one-pointedness that is ikagata, are the two remaining jhanic factors. But, but, uh, but the enlightenment factor of equi equanimity is predominant in this particular uh, jhana, the third jhana. Here, there's a sense of complete flowing with the mind and body. There's hardly a separation. There's no sense of, that sense of, a, uh, of observer gives way to just the observing. Just the complete attunement. There's body mental phenomena and the awareness simultaneously, appearing, disappearing. The third Vipassana jhana moves one beyond the attachment to rapture, and therefore one has experiences the happiness of equanimity because the mind doesn't feel too thrown one way or the other by whatever's happening. In fact, it's this third Vipassana jhana that one experiences the, the, a summit of Vipassana practice because it feels uh, so sweet. It's a sense of dwelling in this equanimity without any attachment. There's not that edge. When attachment is there, there's also a fear that it's going to disappear. There's this real ease and comfort. It feels often like the that's the highest one can go in feeling happiness in equanimity, in practice. Spacious panoramic awareness. This is often followed, this third Vipassana jhana, which has seen the nature of things arise and pass at its most mature level, is often followed by a drop, kind of drop. Uh, everything dissolving. Often one experiences the body dissolving. Often one experiences in sitting no body. Also no comfort. Uh, everything seems to be disappearing and one can feel rather distraught. Uh, objects seem to be gone. Uh, concepts fall away too. It's still deep insight but there's no concepts to hold anything together. It's like you just feel completely at the mercy of, of this phenomena coming up. And this dissolution can often be followed by other uh, also insight stages of uh, fear, of feeling misery, of feeling this profound disenchantment with things. Often these happen quite quickly, but sometimes one's in them for quite a while. So it's difficult 
Where is that spacious ease, comfort gone? Where is that happiness of equanimity? It's gone. Until the fourth Vipassana, jhana. Thank goodness. And here, there's no happiness, but there's also no unhappiness. There's no pleasure, there's no displeasure. It's a perfected insight because the mind is so perfectly balanced. And this insight, this Vipassana jhana, is characterized by the total one-pointedness of mind. And the equanimity is here, too. It's at, at its very strongest. In fact, this as an insight in the map of progress of insight, this is the summit. This is the insight of equanimity toward all formations. No matter what's coming up, the body and the mind, this is profound balance. Things that ordinarily would attract or allure or seduce the mind uh, don't do so. And things that would repel or offend or intimidate, uh, they also just come and go. It's as if the mind does not uh, bend or does not bend far. It's just totally balanced in the face of these things that appear. No attachment. The mindfulness here is, is that it's most perfect, most pure, lucid, this incredible clarity of subtle phenomena coming and going, just particles, waves, subtle mind states. Uh, the happiness of purity of mindfulness due to equanimity is the characteristic of this fourth Vipassana jhana. Purity of mindfulness due to equanimity. We begin the practice with, with mindfulness. Mindfulness begins to cultivate the equanimity right from the beginning, but the purest uh, mindfulness eventually arises from this equanimity. These are the four Vipassana jhanas. The first, uh, having all five jhanic factors and seeing, beginning to see the arising and passing nature. Uh, the second uh, has vitaka vichara, our connecting, sustaining qualities, uh, recede. And the, and the second jhana is characterized more by piti. And it starts to see on a deeper level the nature of phenomena, nicha, dukkha, anatta, uh, uh, more brightness of mind come up, strong piti, deep interest. And then in the third jhana, the, the piti falls away, gives rise to comfort. And here we've overcome the, the distractions of the first jhana, stopping without and the uh, wandering without, and in the second jhana, the, the uh, stopping within. And here is a strong equanimity. Uh, and it feels like a, a very high point of practice. But then that can be followed uh, by insights involving dissolution, uh, fear, misery, uh, disgust, disenchantment. And then again with the arising of the fourth Vipassana jhana or the insight into the uh, equanimity of formations. 
That is, all formations, all phenomena that are appearing. There's this deep, focused um, peace, equanimity of being. Some of the aids to attuning the mind to this flow, um, to this samadhi, are staying steady with inclining the mind toward observing the mind and body, uh, attuning it to the mind-body nature. Secondly, to incite on occasion investigation, energy, joy, uh, for laxity in the inquiry or res uh, resistance that comes up, that is, the, those energizing awakening factors, you bring them up to overcome resistance to effort or sloth and torpor. And third, too, is uh, restraining the mind, that is, um, checking, balancing, excessive investigation, energy, and uh, elation. It needs cooling down, too riled up, too wired up. It needs a softening. Uh, gladdening the mind through reflection on the triple gem, or whatever it is that inspires your Dhamma practice, Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, uh, Devas, whatever it is that gladdens the mind, that brings the good, good deep feeling of joy. Uh, that is a condition for samadhi, that happiness and gladdening of mind. is a condition for unified mind. Uh, and fifth, regarding. Regarding means not interfering with the process. You know, once it gets going and finding its own rhythm, kind of let it happen. It's always, often it's a tendency to make what's good enough somehow better. And uh, we, we can mess it up that way. Don't need to add anything. Uh, inclining is the sixth way to uh, develop samadhi. In all our postures and activities, uh, inclining toward a unified awareness. That means in walking, just walking. In standing, just standing. In reaching, just reaching in washing or eating, uh, going to the bathroom, uh, whatever one is doing, this, this total unified awareness with that experience. We treasure Vipassana Samadhi, uh, finally, because it has three attributes that carry over into every part of our lives. The first is Equanimity cultivates this, this combination of care and detachment. This presence and this wise detachment. Uh, buoyancy and power. Subtlety and strength. Like the needle smith's fine needle. Secondly, uh, Vipassana Samadhi nurtures metta so that we begin to view the world through the lens of loving-kindness uh, and learn to attune to the goodness in beings, even the ones with whom we have difficult relationships, relating from a ground of basic affection for, uh, for any and all living beings. The equanimity, the metta. And thirdly, the Vipassana Samadhi provides a powerful protection 
from the unskillful states. That is, there's this capacity to absorb and transform in Vipassana Samadhi. It doesn't shatter our collectedness, but we take it in and let it turn, let it reform, let the energy become something else. So when we see the arising of something and the knowledge of what has arisen, uh, we're not obscured by, by identification, by ignorance of what's happening. Rather, we can tune more quickly into its nature of impermanence, of anatta, emptiness, selflessness. This is our practice. When we first hear the Dhamma, it might be like uh, when we first, having never before seen a river, hear that there's a river. You know, it arouses this interest and desire. This Dhamma that we hear is good in the beginning, good in the middle, good in the end. This spotless Dhamma that leads not only to that place, deep equanimity of formations, but beyond that, for that is indeed the stepping stone to the unconditioned, to the deathless. So we hear of this Dhamma, like we may hear of a river, and then we go and we see the river. And seeing the river is like when we start to see the nature of the mind and body. It's not so solid. And then we may go a little further, and that means uh, perhaps touching the river, feeling it, putting our hands, legs in it, feeling the force of the river, more direct attunement. In the same way, uh, in further development of the Vipassana jhanas, we touch more deeply into it and gain more faith, more joy, more interest. And then we may actually let go into the river and start to flow with the river, feel begin to feel ease, contentment, uh, even uh, an equanimity in flowing with the river. And yet we may still come across places of the river, like rapids, where everything is disappearing, and that flow will be difficult. We'll feel fear. We'll feel disillusionment, feel disenchantment. But we can just stay with that not let the practice fall apart and go through that, we come to a place of feeling uh, one with the river, a complete one-pointedness, a supreme kind of equanimity, purity of mindfulness arising from that equanimity. Oneness with the river. And then at some point, there's no river and no one who's one with the river. All the doors were broken down and the sun came bursting through my forehead. It tore apart my closed lids, cut loose my being from its wrappers and pulled me out of myself to wake me from this animal sleep and its centuries of stone.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.